actually right there go against the idea of what revival is. And I would like to suggest to you that I think God is actually leading us and taking us from a point where real revival is is the idea of people being revived. Literally, where there's something that has been like there, life has become lackluster, or life has become, um, there's atrophy, or something has happened, and then life is brought back again. The thing that I find to be a little bit interesting as you, as you think about that is, why do we think revival is, I'm just going to mess with you for a moment. To me, historically speaking, the number one thing that people say signify revival, a real revival, certified, bony fide revival, is souls being saved. Did everybody agree? Here's the thing that I, I, I would like to suggest to you that doesn't make any sense about that. If these people weren't saved, how are they being revived? They're being vibed. Conceptually speaking, it, it's revival. The, 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 the concept of revival is not for the world, and it's not for unsaved souls. Sorry. It's just not. It's, it is something that the evidences of revival is something that's to impact the lost. In fact, I, 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 I had a conversation with somebody, and we were discussing this, and he said, well, um, the, don't you realize that it's about souls? And I said, it's absolutely about souls. It's just not only about lost ones. It's always about souls. It's just not always about lost ones. And so when you talk about the concept of revival, to me, revival is something that happens where people that have been alive become revived so that it leads us to resurrection. Resurrection is the goal. Resurrection is this. Resurrection is where you become alive and you become somebody that has the authority through relationship to leverage life into culture. What was it that Jesus' resurrection afforded? I can inherit his resurrection because he resurrected, I now can have life, right? That's what resurrection does. The point of resurrection is you realize that Jesus wasn't the first person to be resurrected, right? I will mess this with you. That's true. He was not the first be person to be crucified, and he was not the first person to be resurrected. In fact, resurrections happen in the Old Testament. One of my favorite stories in the world is the is the last miracle of Elisha, where Elisha's body is inside a tomb. These guys are carrying um, like a funeral procession. They're carrying a body into the cemetery to bury somebody. What they what happens though is it was a very tumultuous time in Israel, and the Philistines and this, uh, the Amorites or somebody decided that that was a battleground. So these guys are carrying the funeral procession. Here comes, you know, this army and this army to fight right there. So the first thing that they could think to do is we got to get rid of this body and get out of here. They need to argue in an OFT. And so what they do is they open up what happens to be Elisha's tomb and throw this dead body in it. The guy wakes up. He, as soon as he touches the bones of Elisha, he comes back to life. Now, I don't need to go into the physical or the medical aspects of this, but he had been embalmed. So I don't even I don't even know how that works. I don't even like that's one of those that I want to get the YouTube. 
Like, when I get to heaven, like, I want I need the video for this. Uh, because I, I, can you imagine, not only is it enough that you died, but you wake up in somebody else's tomb and then walk out into the middle of a war zone. Can you imagine the, the layers of shock that this guy had to be feeling of, like, where am I and what is happening? And I'm hoping he didn't get hit with, like, a, a stray arrow. You know, that'd be kind of weird. Uh, you know, he's gone again, you know. Uh, but it's, it's just this weird thought of, of, you know, we think that Jesus is the first one that was ever resurrected, and that's why I get to go to heaven. Well, that's just not how it worked. The thing that separated the work of Jesus beyond the fact that he was the spotless lamb was that he came to provide resurrection so that we could inherit what he inherited. And so what happens in revival is that we experience a reviving where we become alive again, but then we actually become ambassadors of life. So as ambassadors of life, it becomes our responsibility to bring life to places that are lacking it. So, what we have in church is this is this is all big, this quick, but in a concise way, what we have through the through my whole existence in church is you have one of two things: you have this thought that revival comes to stir you up so that it can carry you forward, and you get really, really. I mean, I remember like leaving some of those services and feeling like I could put hell out with a squirt gun. I mean, I was super stoked. We would leave revival services at the assembly and drive straight to Walmart and litter everybody's cars with tracks, you know, because I was going to get every. That always works. You know, nothing nothing tells them Jesus loves them like a chick track that tells them they're going to burn in hell. Um, and so, it's true. Um, and so, we would do all of this stuff. Uh, a cartoon really is what gets them, is what I've found, you know. There's nothing like a cartoon chick track that really drives home the love of Jesus. And so when you, we would do that kind of stuff because we were in, we were in revived. We were, well, there was life that was there. However, there was no relationship that was, that was taught to be able to sustain it. So it was just this big ebb and flow thing that would happen. So then what I found was that the valleys or the desert places or the dry places begin to be more common than the high places or the revived places. So then we had to develop theology that said it was okay for us to be dry. So we actually had to then begin to develop theology that taught us that the wilderness or the dry place where he was far from us was acceptable and in fact holy. And we begin to say things like, well, you know, when, uh, when you, a lifestyle of being in the wilderness, it's not all about the emotions that come with, with his visitation. And we begin to develop phrases and things that actually unintentionally spoke disparagingly of, of the feeling of his visitation and encounter, which is really what it's all supposed to be about anyway. So then we went further and we said, now what we need to do is we need to teach discipline doctrine. Discipline doctrine simply says, you just need to be faithful. You just need to stand firm, and you need to pray for two hours every single day, and you need to read the Bible every single day, and you need to do this, and do this, and do this, and expect no results of it, expect no visitation, expect no encounter, because we're a wilderness people, and that made us holy. The challenge to that is, it's just true enough to be false. The most powerful 
twistings are the ones that are just close enough to true. We are a wilderness people. John the Baptist was a wilderness person. He prepared the way of the Lord. That's part of our responsibility. Jesus was a wilderness person. Where was it John the Baptist and Jesus met so Jesus could be baptized before he was sent into earthly ministry? I don't really think that the Jordan ran straight through Jerusalem. Okay? It wasn't right in the city center. They could, and there was a lot of places they could have baptized Jesus. It was in the wilderness. What was it that happened immediately following Jesus' baptism? Where was he driven or led by the Spirit? Into the wilderness, right? So the wilderness is a big part. The challenge is that we have interpreted the wilderness in light of a fallen state of humanity in which nobody has ever determined that we're supposed to be those that reclaim and restore the wilderness as a watered garden. See, we are supposed, we are destined for the wilderness. It's just not supposed to stay dry. That's the difference. We are destined for the wilderness. We are destined to be a people that find him in the remote places. We are a people that are literally to look for dry places. No, I shouldn't say look for. That are to come upon dry places in our culture and be ones who minister life unto it so that place doesn't stay a dry place. But what we've been taught is that being able to live like some spiritual camel that doesn't require any life from him is what makes us holy. I don't know where we got that doctrine because reality, we're not supposed to be camels that can live on this much encounter flow from him. We're supposed to be rivers that make pools in dry places. I don't care how much water you can carry in that pump, it's not going to be enough. And so what happens is we just live off of that, and it becomes no wonder then that we were never taught that we were supposed to give any water out. Why? I'm rationing. I mean, the reality is we would act like, I don't know when the next time it is I'm going to come upon a pool in this wilderness. And I certainly don't have rivers of life flowing out of me. I've got just enough for me to drink. So what he begins to teach us then is he says, okay, if you're actually connected to me, the result of you coming before my throne is you are going to be a conduit of the river that flows that is life. And so, yes, you're going to be sent to dry places. Yes, you're going to have dry seasons. The difference is if you have a river flowing out of you, as soon as you get to the dry place and the river becomes activated, it no longer is a dry place. If I've upended all of your thoughts about the wilderness, I've done my job. We can move on. So, uh, I'm going to read to you just a couple quick notes, and then we'll get into some some cool stuff. Um, we have been talking about a concept over the last six months or so called rewilding. Um, the, the short version of, of about five teachings is that um, there has been a thought in, in the church um, that I grew up in that essentially says, when you get saved, it's your job to then conform and become uniform to what the church does, and in most cases, specifically what that church does. Better example. If we were a Methodist church, or if we were a Lutheran church, or if we were a... One of the funniest stories I I heard was recently, I was talking to a guy that was a, a, was a, a, a pastor that was raised Baptist, uh, specifically Southern Baptist. 
and he said that um, he had he's never heard anybody. He's in his 40s. He's never heard anybody uh, pray in the spirit before, ever in his life. Never even heard anybody do it. And he said that would have absolutely not been accepted whenever he was growing up. And they said, well, what would happen if somebody came into the church and did do that? Um, you know, they were just praying in the spirit to themselves during worship or whatever. And he said, well, somebody would come alongside of them and, and, and simply ask the qualifying question. Did you bring an interpreter? So the did you bring an interpreter question is intended to shut it all down. Now, this is where my mind goes. I would love to be the guy that's then two rows back that goes, yep, I'm here. I would love to be that guy. Like, I would love to be, because I don't know what they would do. The intention is that as soon as you say, no, I didn't bring an interpreter, then you have to stop. I wonder what happens when somebody says, yep, I'm right over here. Thus says the Lord, boys. <laughs> you know? All right, cowboys, let's see where this goes. You know, I really think that would just be a fun thing to do. So when you think about that, uh, and assume, but the, the answer to that is as soon as you say anything, they're going to start, they're going to get out their Bible. Because that's the next thing that happens. So they start, well, it doesn't say it exactly like that. So what you would ultimately have to do is the interpreter just open Genesis and start reading. That would really mess with them. Because how are they going to dispute that with the Word of God? Um, but that concept is exactly what happens at church. Why? You get saved, and if you go into a charismatic church and they worship with their arms raised, what do you do? You assimilate to that. If you go into a church that's reserved and they don't do that kind of stuff, you assimilate to that. And we learn very quickly just by human nature of assimilation, whether we're to stand or whether we're to sit or whether we're to do a half hand or whether we're to do the cinema or whether we're to do the light bulb change or whatever it is that you're to do in your expression of worship. And ultimately what happens is we teach a uniformity doctrine that is absolutely unscriptural. Because the way this is supposed to work is it's supposed to be eclectic. It's supposed to be free enough that somebody can sit in solemn worship while somebody dances next to them. That's what free really looks like. And so what happens as we've talked about rewilding, part of what we have to understand is that tame is not a type of expression that's physical, although it can be physical. Tame is a heart that says, I'm not allowed to. Tame is a heart that resists obedience to follow whatever he says. And so what he tries to do then is he try, he's, he's visiting us and he's giving us, um, I, I don't even know a good way to say it. He's giving us the, um, the freedom or the permission, I guess is maybe the best word, as a father to say, I want you to obey my voice and it doesn't matter what that looks like. So he's breaking off the timidity and the tame nature of what we thought this was supposed to be. He's breaking off things that say, you're not a Christian like I'm a Christian if you believe politically different than I believe. He's breaking off the tame, timid nature that says, you're not a Christian like I'm a Christian if you accept Black Lives Matter or you don't accept Black Lives Matter. Let's get real here. 
I'm, you're not a Christian like I'm a Christian if you don't believe that he's, he's coming back, he's going to split the eastern sky in the same way that I think he's going to split. I mean, everybody knows it's going to look like the Left Behind movie. And if you don't believe with that, if you don't, then we don't, you know, we just can't get along. Look, the reality is part of what makes family family is that you're going to have different elements to this. Mom and I were talking about this yesterday. And I, when you look at the scripture, it is glaringly evident that Paul over and over and over and over and over, he uses family language to describe the church. It's us that's turned it into an army. That is unscriptural doctrine. I'm not saying we're not soldiers. What I am saying, when he describes us collectively, he doesn't describe it as an army. We fire up the Carmen tape and sing, God's got an army marching through the land. You know, and we get all spiritual and warrior-focused and excited about that kind of stuff. And most of you probably don't even know who Carmen is. I grew up listening to Carmen, which he just got married, I think, like last year or something like that. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the um, you know we hear that kind of stuff and we and we respond to it. And what we don't understand is that within that army mentality that we've been taught, we first of all feel like that. Then what's the responsibility with with you're in the army? You have no identity. Everybody's got the same haircut. Everybody's got the same clothes. Everybody's got the same shoes. Everybody is you're issued your identity, and it better match everybody else's identity in the group. So it's no wonder that when the church embraces the idea of the army, we think you better vote like me, you better talk like me, you better dress like me, you better talk, you listen like me, you better all that kind of stuff. And that's just not scriptural. Part of what makes it really, really cool about the family is everybody brings something different. And there's always that weird person at Thanksgiving dinner that brings biscuits and gravy. You know, there's always that really oddball person that, like, you know, we say, okay, we're going to do brunch, and they make some quiche that nobody really wants to eat. They're just, that just happens. And so what, when we talk about, uh, and depending on where you come from, it really depends on how it's seasoned as well. And there's probably raisins in it. Uh, and so when you look at this idea of how the church has been modeled, he's rewilding us for a reason. He's breaking off, first and foremost, what the church has said we're allowed to be. And he's secondarily then going deeper than that. He's saying, because you will know me as father, I now can also break off the fear where people have told you you're not good enough, where people have told you you can't accomplish anything, where people have told you you're wrong, the, the mistakes that you've, that you've made that have made you um, uh, uh, unwilling to put yourself out there to be used by him. He then goes back and begins to deal with those fingerprints that have come because nothing will set the fence or the ceiling or the boundary of what you're willing to allow God to do like failure. Look, here's the deal. When you get, well, I remember what it's like. When you first get saved or you get like really fired up with the Lord, it's like we can do anything. There is no bridge too far. Greencastle is getting saved tomorrow. Like, Everybody, whether they want to or not, you know, everybody's getting saved. And and we, we look for, like, the most difficult situations. We, we're walking down the street and somebody says something about, about being a Satanist. And we're like, I'm, they're getting saved today. Like, we want to pick, like, the worst. That's just what we do. Why? Because there's that thing in us that says God can do whatever he 
wants to do, and there's obedience, but all it takes is one time then where we share with somebody that we believe that they're going to get saved, or we pray for somebody that we believe they're going to get healed, and they don't. And it reframes our doctrine of what he's wanting to do. And so he has to come back in rewilding us. Part of that is breaking away and cleansing the fingerprints of our failures, the fingerprints of our disappointments, the fingerprints of those situations that we've been through so that we can actually come before him in obedience and purity again and say, God, you're very, very willing to define yourself. You don't need my help. And so when we look at this this morning, this idea of rewilding is going to be very, very, very important for us. So I'm going to read to you just a little bit. God is now moving us into a dimension where what he has sovereignly brought in revival can lead us into resurrection. He's giving us an understanding that will actually allow us, through proximity, to begin to leverage his presence into our culture. His plan for cultural transformation was never intended to come from a church in revival with fire shooting out of the steeple and lines of people in the parking lot. Those are wonderful things. But if we stop there, we will miss what he was really trying to lead us into, which is becoming a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Salt and light that are injected into culture around us to demonstrate his image and his nature to the world. Remember that Jesus' release into public ministry is instigated by baptism. And this baptism, the point of it, I just need to put a pin here, if you will, but the Jesus' baptism, what was the point? What was it that was reinforced in baptism? What is it the Father spoke over Jesus? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So the point of the baptism experience, or what that did, was baptism was an embrace of who Jesus was, and it specifically was a reinforcement of beloved identity. So prior to Jesus functioning or moving into um, his public ministry, the first thing that had to happen was a galvanizing of how the Father saw him. That's how it works. If the sin-free Savior needed the reinforcement of this identity, how much more do you and I? This, uh, This proceeds manifest power and glory. This proceeds manifest power and glory, which marks a three year earthly ministry. This identity is sealed by his transition into the wilderness, which is where his baptism was in the first place. Part of the necessity right now is to allow him to change how we view the wilderness. We have viewed this as a time of dryness and times of distance between us and God, and even punishment for missing his purpose. If a wilderness is punishment, then why would God have chose the most powerful moment in in the initiation of Jesus' life in ministry to punish him? Do you think that at that moment that the wilderness represented distance between him and God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If a wilderness is present within society, it is simply a place waiting for the deluge of his presence to restore it to his original intention. I'm going to read that again. If a wilderness is present within society, It is simply a place waiting upon the deluge of his presence to restore it to his original intention. The problem is, in most cases, we don't know that we're dry or a wilderness until we feel the rain. 
thirsty, and you're so thirsty you're not even, you don't even realize you're thirsty until you drink, take a drink of water, and you're like, line them up, boys. I am so thirsty. Hit me again, you know. Uh, you just keep, why? Because sometimes you don't know that until you feel that quench. That's what's going to begin to happen. And there's what God's going to begin to do is, as we begin to walk in the reign of His presence, the, the reign of His presence, what's going to happen is He's going to allow people to drink from us who didn't realize they were dry, and it's going to cause a, and spark a thirst for something they didn't know they were thirsty for. And I promise you, they're not thirsty for your religion. You know, um, for years, I, I played guitar for a really long time. I, I told Rob this last Sunday. It's one of the weirdest things in the room um, to play music in front of probably the best musician I've ever met. Um, and uh, Rod taught me more about music than, than I possibly could have put into I could I could write books about what I learned just watching, watching Rod play music. Um, and he put up with the fact that I didn't know what I was doing a lot. Uh, it was really gracious about it. Um, and so... Uh, I, I, one of the things that uh, I've played guitar since I was like 15, um, and I've had a lot of people ask me through the years to give lessons, and I, I've never given lessons to anybody. I always refuse, and the reason for that is because I, I taught myself how to play guitar. I never had, never bought any books. Um, I never took any lessons from anybody. I literally just, my mom bought me a J.C. Penney electric guitar. They had the speaker built into the guitar. I don't know if you've ever even seen those. Uh, I don't even think they make them anymore, but it has a speaker on the guitar, and you put like like 18 9-volt batteries in the back of it, so it, it, it weighs about as much as a Sherman tank by the time it actually comes on, um, and so there was a switch that you would flip on it, and so it would do like this really horrible overdrive kind of thing, but I thought that I was Johnny Ramone, and uh, and it, I would, you know, I would just sit up there in my room and, and rock and roll. And it was funny because I would sit with a, uh, at the time, we had cassette tape decks. I don't know if uh, I bet everybody in here is probably somewhat familiar. So the cool thing with my cassette tape deck that I had taken from my dad uh, was that um, it had a switch on it where I could slow it down, which became really cool because I could slow it down so I could figure out how to make the sounds I was hearing. So I would sit for hours and I would sit in front of this tape deck and just slow stuff down. In fact, there's stories about guys back in the 60s and 70s. What they would do is they would put a rock on top of the record or some weight to slow down a record to, to have the same effect. So I had read about this. Um, I'm not, I have a very proud vinyl collection. I'm not encouraging you to put rocks on your records, just to be clear. Uh, but I would sit in front of the tape, tape deck and I would learn all these songs. And, and um, I didn't know what a chord, I didn't even know the term chord. I didn't know what that meant. So I, I then after a couple months of this, I was, I was proud enough to be able to finally show, you know, show off my chops off what I could do. So a buddy of mine came over and he had brought his guitar because he had been taking lessons for about a year. And um, I was like, look at this. And I played something. I was like, doesn't that sound cool? And he's like, that's a G. That's like the most common chord on guitar in the world. And I was like, it has a name? I just knew I'd put my fingers in places until it didn't sound bad. Um, you know, so all of this leads me to say, I've had people through the years ask me to give lessons and I've always refused because I know that since I was self-taught, there are also things that are bad habits that I have that are really not the right way to do things. It's just how I did it because out of, you know, what is it, the necessities of mother of invention. Um, and so I just kind of had to figure it out. 
And I, because I don't want them to learn my bad habits. So I have people that I recommend that I know are really good guitar players, very schooled in music, and very educated to be able to teach that kind of stuff. So I say, always recommend them. One of the things that happens, I think, is that's the issue with bad theology in church. Is that we have bad, some of the stuff that's, it's, it's not, it's not um, malicious. It's not that we're trying to be wrong. But we have some bad theology, like about who God is and about how he feels about people. So then when we bring people into church, we teach them what the Bible says. But along with that, while we're teaching them how to play GCD, we're also teaching them. There, it's, it's, it's hybrid in some way because it's ingrained with some of these other things that are the bad habits of our bad theology. So what God is doing is he's rewilding us in the sense that we're no longer stricken or restrained back by the fact that on one hand, I believe that God is holy, but if I believe God's holy, that means that I need to be in shame if I've done something wrong. See, we have issues when we say things like, God is holy, and he says to me, be ye holy as I am holy, and then we follow that up by some fiery altar call about how you're getting ready to split hell wide open because you haven't repented for the fact you threw a four-letter word. That's called bad theology. And what I have to tell you right now is part of what he's, uh, he's loosing within us is he's loosing the thought within us that he's good and faithful to everybody in this room, but he's also good and faithful to the Muslims who are worshiping in a mosque this morning. If that doesn't mess with you, you didn't hear it. One of the things that I saw this morning while Eli and Ashley were leading worship, and I, this is not something I've been thinking about, so this is, I knew it was coming. But as I was praying, the Lord just showed me this scene, and he showed me this young lady, she's a young girl, she's probably 14 or 15, and she was um, in, in a mosque worshiping somewhere, and I don't even know if it was happening right now, but I feel like it was as they were worshiping. And But she, in her heart, had prayed, God, and I, I'm not even going to get into who she thought she was praying to. I'm going to get into the fact that God can use anyone he wants. They can ask for Allah to visit them and God show up and change their life. Okay? So she was praying and she said, God, I want to feel you. And as they were worshiping, I felt the Lord just come here. And then he really quickly showed me the flash of this girl again. And she she opened her eyes because she felt him for the first time. And she opened her eyes and kind of looked around her, and there was other people around her. They were kneeling. Um, and I, I saw immediately the look of shock and surprise on her face as she looked around her. Nobody else was feeling what she was feeling. And in her heart, she began to worship. And, and that was when, I think at some point, when you guys probably begin to say that, so will I. That was what she was saying. You know, and so there is that thing where if he's good and faithful, then there is no line to his good and faithful. He's good and faithful to the victim, and he's good and faithful to the predator. That that should be hard. That's hard for me. I'm saying it, and I don't believe it here yet. But I know it's true. He's good and faithful to the victims of the family of drunk driving accidents, and he's good and faithful to the drunk driver. He's good and faithful to the LGBT community. 
and he's not waiting for them to get straight for him to be good and faithful to them. He's good and faithful to the people on both sides of every aisle that we have and every line that we've drawn because he's never drawn a line. That's what this is about. So, from this posture, we can actually see what this wilderness is supposed to be. And all of these places, he is literally deconstructing and breaking the lines of our systems that we have erected that are not his. We have put his name on them, but they don't belong to him. And what he's saying is, when heaven comes, it's not going to have an R in front of it. It's not going to have a D in front of it. It's not going to say, I'm in this group or in this group. It's not going to be something that says, I have to raise my hands or speak in tongues, or I have to kneel and I have to uh, um, you know, cross myself. It's not going to matter. Because what he's doing is, he is, at, I believe there's right and wrong, and I believe what Scripture teaches. I'm not talking about that. But everything that we believe in the Bible has to bow its knee to the Word that became flesh, and His name is Jesus. Let me just say this. Jesus is perfect theology. Everything that we believe in theology or in doctrine better bow its knee to how Jesus lived. His life is perfect theology. And he went to the Samaritan, and he went to the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus was in the business of rewilding people and saying, you don't have to conform in order to come home. So there's actually this thing that is happening, and I, I, I really do believe he's introducing us to this uh, uh, unknowing, and he's introducing us to this undoing where we can actually know and actually do what he actually is and actually does. No longer the thought of he has to do it like this or he has to do it like that, but an unknowing and an undoing that says, I just want you to come. And what ultimately happens then is he introduces us into the wilderness as a catalyst. And I actually had to look up that word. I didn't know what the word catalyst actually meant. But a catalyst, I mean, I've, I've used the term, but I always use it to speak of like a pillar or something of importance. But a true catalyst in scientific terms is a substance that is added to an equation to speed up the rate of the reaction. So he's introducing us to wildernesses as a catalyst to change the equation and speed up the rate of the reaction whereby that wilderness place becomes a fruitful garden. That's what we are as catalysts. That's the point of salt and light. Salt and light is not just to, to, to be able to taste that there's a difference. Salt and light is to flavor everything so that literally in the wilderness place, we become the lightning rod for the rain to come. We become the ones that cry out so that the pool becomes fruitful again. And one of the things that I know we're going to continue to see, and we start there, right? Uh, one of the things that I know we're going to continue to see is we're going to see this in ways that really, really challenge what we believe. And I, I don't know if you know this, but I, as a pastor in the area, I regularly pray for a lot of the other pastors in the area, but I also understand this is not going to make us very popular. 
being honest with you. You know, this is this is not something that's a, a, that's that's that a lot of people are going to be lining up for. Now, the Lord's going to send people, but He's going to send people who are willing to be those. He's going to send Zacchaeus, that is a mess, but he's called to be the twelfth disciple. That's what the Lord's going to do. So they are now actually in the process. Scientists are in the process of learning to rewild our ecosystems. This is one of the coolest things I've ever read. Um, this is being referred to by geological and, and ecological, ecological scientists as Project Lazarus. Scientists are re... This is literally a term. You can Google this. They're rewilding ecosystems in our country. And the way they're rewilding them is they're actually taking um, non... This is... I, I just, I'm going to read the quote because I'm going to mess it up. It's too good to mess up. This is the quote. We rewild the ecosystem by rehoming... You hearing this? Rehoming native, undomesticated, displaced inhabitants. Scientists are... are con- uh, so, one of the examples is, go, when you have time, I was going to show this one, but, uh, but I, I, I decided not to. Um, when you have time, go home and go on YouTube and, and type in rewilding and Yellowstone Park. In Yellowstone Park in 1995, they introduced 40 wolves back into Yellowstone Park. There had not been wolves there in, in I think, 80 or 90 years. When they reintroduced wolves, um, one of the things, because one of the issues in Yellowstone Park was it was overrun by deer, it was overrun by elk. The, the, the entire ecosystem had, had completely eroded. Um, all of the valleys were, had become just wasteland in many of the places were just completely dry. There was no grass. Um, and so one of the things, this is good old man's thinking, one of the things that we decided to do is we just need to send hunters in. So they would actually open up Yellowstone Park at certain times of the year, three or four times a year, for hunters to go in to thin out the population of the deer and the elk and, you know, where the deer and the antelope play. Um, and so they would send them in with the intention of that's going to correct it. It didn't. And so it had gotten so far as actually the rivers that run through Yellowstone Park had begun to dry up. So somebody comes up with this idea that we need to rewild non-domesticated wolves back into Yellowstone. Now, my first thought is that makes no sense because wolves kill, wolves are predatory. They, they're going to kill things. So my thought is, wait a minute, how's this going to help with wildlife? They don't have any birds in, in Yellowstone. There aren't any beaver. The beaver have left. Um, there aren't any, hardly any rabbits. You know, what are the wolves going to do? What they actually found was the wolves restored the rivers because over the next period of six or eight years, within two years, the tree, the, I'm, I'm jumbling, the video is much better, but um, within two years, the trees had grown to three times their previous height. They actually said that when the wolves came in, they began to thin out the herd of the deer, but that wasn't the big part. The part that was really cool is it began to change the pattern, the trafficking pattern of the deer and of the um, uh, and of these antelope, um, and they would 
would go into different areas. So the areas where they would graze that were overrun, they would then leave alone and it would begin to grow back up. So it shows in the video areas that are just dirt. I mean, these like thousands and thousands of acre fields that are just dirt that all of a sudden grass is beginning to grow there. Trees are beginning to grow there. And then it gets even crazier because the trees begin to grow. The birds migrated back. So all of a sudden now there's birds that come. The wolves also begin to eat the coyotes. And so since the coyotes were thinned out, the rabbits and the chipmunks came back. When the, when the rabbits and the chipmunks came back, um, all of a sudden they started eating and the trees began to be life-giving again. And now the beavers that had left had things to create their dams with. So they begin to function in the rivers and begin to dam up the rivers as they were designed. And now they said that the rivers are the biggest part that's amazing about this because coyote have, or excuse me, wolves have nothing to do with rivers. And yet the rivers are back. They said, I think that they're three times the width that they were whenever they reintroduced wolves. This is called Project Lazarus. Actually, they've went far enough now in the world, one of the things they're doing is, over the last uh, five or six years, they've started introducing into deserts where they can't grow anything. They would go into a desert place and they'd say, okay, we want to get some life here. They would try to plant things or groom things there. It wouldn't work. What they've started doing is they've started introducing non-domesticated cattle and grass is now growing out of sand. Makes no sense. But what they've learned is that specifically it has to be something that's wild. That's why they're calling it rewilding. And that all it takes for an ecological system to thrive and life to come is to have a steward of that place that is not domesticated and willing to guard over it so that it can be what it's supposed to be. And so what he does then as he begins to introduce us. Oh, here's the other cool thing. Totally forgot this part. You know what scientists are calling this, where these desert places are now becoming like grass growing everywhere, and Yellowstone Park, what their term for it is? Revival. That's literally what they call it. I read the report. The report actually says, these ecological systems, Yellowstone Park is experiencing an ecological revival. That's incredible, but it comes with rehoming, which is what this has all been about. Well, we know our father, we're reintroduced to what home really is. We're either rehoming these things that are unwilling to be domesticated, unwilling to be tamed. I'm not talking about not domesticated to the father. What I'm saying is not domesticated by systems that have said how we're to operate. I'm talking about things that where we say, I'm not allowed to give a prophetic word to that person. I don't know them. Or I'm not allowed to give a prophetic word to that person because I know them. I'm not allowed to, to, to do that kind of thing because that's just not what it's supposed to be. You know one of the things that he's had me do that is really messing with me and I'm not too, super thrilled about it, but I've been doing it anyway, is he'll have me just driving down the road and make me pull over and get out of the car and worship on the side of the road. That's not fun. Like, I'm not stoked about this idea. He and I have had several conversations. But part of the point is, is it's, he, he literally, he said to me, he said, I want to bring fire to that area, but I'm just looking for a sacrifice. He just, that's the point. You know, he wants to bring water to 
to the garden or to the place used to be the garden that is currently maybe a dry place. But he's saying, I need a river to flow out of something to start with. I need a lightning rod to be able to, to touch. I need something to call these pools out. And when that begins to happen, life begins to come in dry places. So, so that none of you can say that we didn't look at the scripture this morning. Uh, if you look with me at your first passage, there's a bunch of good ones. I just picked three out of Isaiah. Um, uh, Isaiah 51, verse 1. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness. Ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock into which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit where you were digged. Meaning, look where you are from. Look what you were made from. Look what you've been carved out of. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For verse 3, the Lord shall comfort Zion. Let me just be clear. I have to say this, I just have to say it. This is not talking about Jerusalem. This is not talking about Israel. I don't care what the newspaper. I don't care what the the, the, the preachers who you know. I, I know some some pastors that I really highly respect, and they genuinely believe that the when revival comes to the earth, it's going to come because we've been honoring the Jewish people. And I'm not saying that God isn't going to use the Jewish people, but I also believe that God is not restricted to any country. If you actually look what the Bible says, it says He divorced Israel, but that's a whole other thing. And if you really, let's just be New Testament, let's end on a nice note. It actually says you've become his wife. That's what Hebrews says. Hebrews and Romans both teach us that you are now Israel. So, one of the things that I get really, I think is really funny, is why the church has used Israel for the watchword of when Jesus is coming back. I will never understand that. Because that place in the middle of the Middle East is not what he's looking at. It, it's, it's great, and I love that God loves that place. But all he was looking, in fact, if you think about Abraham, God always picks one so that he can affect everyone after it. What he said to Abraham is that Abraham would be a father to Israel or a father to many nations. <clears throat> so Zion here, actually the word for Zion means dry place. That's the word Zion. Means the dry place, the place where I want to bring life. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found there and thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Now, what I'd like to at least point out to you, because it bears uh, uh, meeting being pointed out, it doesn't say that joy, gladness, and thanksgiving come after the desert becomes Eden. What it's actually indicating to us is the way that it becomes Eden. The way that the waste place becomes restored. The way that the desert becomes like the garden is joy, gladness, and thanksgiving in the voice of melody. So I guess what I'm at least maybe suggesting to you is a wilderness is only a wilderness as long as you stay quiet. wilderness is only a wilderness as long as you stay dammed up and don't allow that river to flow out of you. Because then they get to inherit the joy that you've brought. Verse 4, hearken unto me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a loss will proceed out of me. I will make judgment to rest for a light of the people. My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, my arms 
judge the people of the isles shall wait upon me. My arm shall be the place that they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath. The heavens shall vanish away like smoke. The earth shall be like an old, uh, wax old like a garment, excuse me. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Hearken unto me, you that know righteousness, in the people in whose heart is my law. I, I, I wanted to get there because I need to mention this. That when it says, in your heart is my law, it's not questioning how well you've memorized Scripture. I'm not even, I, I, I am, have never been great in memorizing Scripture. I, I just have it. That's not, I, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. We do it with our kids. I believe in that kind of thing. But what, he's, what I have found is the word that keeps me more than anything is what I know he spoke directly to my heart more than my ability to quote the 23rd Psalm. I'm not saying that quoting the 23rd Psalm is wrong. Do that. It's great. But what I do know is that the 23rd Psalm only becomes empowering to me when his life is upon me. And so what he is looking for and what I think the world at large is looking for is us to give them the invitation to hear the voice that they've always been longing to hear. And what I know is there is not a qualifier of how that's supposed to happen. I'm believing that we're going to see revival absolutely fall on Catholic churches. I, I told you guys about the vision the Lord gave me when we were in um, Notre Dame last year. And the Lord gave me this vision while we were there praying about revival coming to some of these um, Catholic um, um, churches that are, are vestiges of, of the past and historically um, uh, have meant so much. It's almost like a museum of what God had done, and he's going to bring life there again. I'm, one of the things that's going to mess the church up, I'm just going to say it, it, one of the things that's going to mess the church up is when God brings revival and outpouring to mosques and Jehovah's Witness churches and uh, Mormon churches and places that aren't in our group at all. And I'm not saying that I agree with them doctrinally, and I'm not saying when God comes, he's not going to have to deal with some stuff. I'm just saying that when God comes, he can come wherever he wants and whenever he wants, and all he's looking for is you to just open the shades a little bit and light comes in. And what I honestly believe is I have found people who are far more willing to hear the voice of God sitting in a bar than sitting inside church. Because all he's looking for is, a, is vulnerability. All he's looking for is authenticity. Honestly. And, and I've had people before that have really come against me and said, well, why would you even talk to them? They've, they've been drinking beer. They could have been drunk. I really don't care what he uses. If God uses Budweiser to get to their heart, he can do whatever he wants. He's in. But he can do whatever he wants, is my point. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good idea. We're not going to pass it out at communion next month. But what I am saying... Sorry, Linda. No Budweiser at communion for next month. I'm really sorry. I know that's her go-to. She likes the diesel. No, I'm, I'm serious, though. We just have these thoughts, and it's like he is going to use whatever he wants. You know, Jesus, when he was dealing with the people at the wedding in Cana, they were hammered. They've been drinking for three days. Seriously? I mean, you realize they were, these guys were schnockered. And all of a 
sudden, Jesus is like, this is a perfect atmosphere for my first miracle. Are you kidding me right now? I mean, he made career moves of this kind of stuff. And why? Because he's just looking and noticed that he could do that, and then he would turn around and go to the temple. He would stand up and read, and they would try and cast him out and kill him. Look, he's going to... He is in the process, and whether you agree with how it's all playing out in our natural culture in this country or not, he is in the process of breaking down the systemic lines that we have made idols and that we have made held up as the staunch ways that God has to do something. And part of what we're seeing playing out in our secular culture is God actually getting in the midst, and he's turning over some tables. I'm not even saying I agree with how all the, te- the, the way people are relating to it. I'm just simply saying you better recognize that God's at the root of it. Because you know what? I'm not going to be the one that after the fact looks back at the civil rights movement and goes, oh, I guess that was God. He does those kinds of things. We just better be so careful that sometimes because it doesn't come in the package we expect and sometimes it doesn't come in the way we would like and it's not always done right. When the world moves as a response to God, it's still a human trying to react to God. And it's not always sanctified. It's not always right. It can get really wrong, in fact. But it doesn't mean that we as the church shouldn't recognize it and point to what it is. Because even though people might be making it that whole uh, victimizing themselves and all that kind of stuff, and the anger and, and the vitriol that comes with all that stuff, I'm not saying that that stuff is right, but what I am saying is we should be pointing to what he's doing and giving them the alternative. Not condemning their action. Not telling them they're wrong, but just simply saying, we have to be saying, I know what you're feeling, and there's life for you. That's the point, that there's life that's available. So, really quickly, one last thing in this uh, this verse. Um, Doug's going to sneak back there and move the clock really quick. (laughs) Somebody's going to attach a string that just goes over the thing, just kind of pull on it, and that hand shoots around to 1 o'clock really quick. Verse 8 of this same passage in Isaiah 51. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation generations. What we thought that means is that it's just not going to stop. That's true. But what I actually believe is now this is going to mess with you. And I'm going to leave it alone. I, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to totally cause a mess and then we're just going to walk away from it. Um, but part of my salvation or the way that I'm going to be made whole is through the next generation of what God's going to do, even though it's going to look contrary to the way he did it in me. And part of the way that salvation or being made whole is going to be evidenced in him is by honoring the way and the thing that he brought to me. It required the disciples who were willing to distribute the loaves and the fishes and the boy who was willing to offer the lunch. Jesus didn't need either one of them to feed the multitudes, but he honored those. So that 
concept that from generation to generation, we just always use that as an attributing to the fact that God's, you know, never going to stop. That's true, but that's not really all of the point. I, re- I heard this story. I've got to share it with you because it's, have you ever just heard those things that like just wreck you, really mess you up, and you're like, I just can't stop thinking about this. I heard of this last night. It's one of those things that, that I, I asked the Lord today. I'm like, Lord, I've been believing for sleep. And he goes, well, then stop thinking. He's sitting on me. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how he, he did that. But I, I couldn't get this out of my head. I heard this story. Um, there's this guy that I really, really like. Um, he's a pastor. He's Puerto Rican. He's working in Puerto Rico right now, um, trying to, to, to help with the, their needs there. They, they, disgusting.
sometimes there is a point where it becomes really difficult for the last people that you did it to to be able to embrace the next thing. And I think that the bigger point is um, that, and, oh, by the way, let me, let me just keep that. Carlos also tells the story that 15 years later he called John Arnott to talk with him about something that was happening, and John Arnott said, well, I just really don't feel like that's God. And Carlos said, well, Pastor, you remember what you told me? And he said, yeah, that's why. Because it didn't look like what they had done in the past. It didn't look like how God had done it before. That's from generation to generation. And then in the midst of John Arnott, then honoring what it was God was calling Carlos to do, even though it didn't look like what the Toronto Outpouring was doing, in the midst of that, there's wholeness that comes and salvation is ministered from generation to generation. That's how this works. And the rewilding is that. The rewilding is where we can, um, you know, many of my conversations with Noah involve me saying things like, I want you to say things that I disagree with. Why? Because it doesn't make him wrong. And, oh, by the way, even if he is wrong, that's okay. How do we get to the point where it's okay to be wrong? That's not going to strike us down. That's just not how it works. And we've lived that way. So part of this rewilding and the fingerprints being removed from us to where we can actually have this kind of environment is an environment that says, number one, it's just okay to get it wrong. And number two, it's absolutely okay that it doesn't look like what it's looked like before, even if in the midst of it happening, it's, it's happening and can happen alongside of something that looks different and not be a threat. If Eli and Ashley lead worship, Natasha and I lead worship, I've done something wrong. Because that's uniformity. We need family. They can cook differently than I can cook, and it's going to touch places in you differently than when I lead or when Tosh leads. And if it touches the same place within you, you're going to have a super strong leg and no upper body strength. That's the way this works. And so part of this rewilding is where the ecosystem of this house gets aligned correctly. Because it, you have all of these things thriving together. That's the point. That's what the garden looks like. And he's, he's correcting the garden of this house. And he's rewilding us first here. Because we have to have a safe space where we can be vulnerable enough to say, I see it different. And all of us to not walk away. Because that's the, that is the leaven that we have to guard against. That somebody sees it differently and we all just throw up our hands. We can't be that way. We have to be a people that can continue to empower people to go forward. And it's the rich joiner prayer of God. Give them dreams and visions, and if their motives are wrong, change their motives, but give them dreams and visions anyway. Don't hold anything back from them that you have for them, Father, and in the process of that, change the things about them that would misappropriate your gifts. But don't hold back your gifts. So, we're going to pray. Uh, I've got a page notes we didn't get to, so we'll get to those another time. I think next Thursday, uh, Either Thursday or Sunday, I haven't decided. We're going to get really real. Um, there's some stuff that the Lord's needing us to talk about.
as if we have been. Yeah, this isn't real yet. This is all just fake, fake news. Um, the uh, what we're um, what we're I think going to talk about is I think we're actually going to talk about some things that he's been speaking to me about um, about some of the lines that he's redrawn. And um, you know, we've been saying for about two years that he really is erasing the lines between sacred and secular. He's, 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 he's actually erasing the lines where, you know, when Eli does photography at a church, it's for God, and when he does photography at a wedding, it's secular. Or when I play music, when I play guitar here, I'm doing it for God, and when I do it elsewhere, I'm doing it for me. There is no sacred or secular in his eyes. There's just heart. same way that um, what I do here on Sunday morning or Thursday night or whatever it may be is no different in his, the line is no different from the way I speak when I'm at work if I'm willing to speak the same way I speak here. That makes sense? If I'm willing to be just as obedient to your voice there as I am here, then there's no difference. One is not sacred and one is not secular. There is no line. That is a man-made line. He is clearing those love you, and we thank you that you are bringing us to this wonderful stage of, of walking with you, whereby you have revived us. There's just no question. Um, we're not going to be able to stand in the middle of the river and, and ask to get wet. We recognize you have brought this, and you have touched us, and you have brought life beyond what we thought was even possible. And within that, we also can honor that and recognize that's not the end. And that, Father, you're bringing us to a point of true resurrection where we become ambassadors and where we become carriers of life and where our shadow begins to carry you to such a high degree that our very presence demonstrates your presence because of the abide that we have with you. And life happens to people as a result. So, Father, we ask you that that would be who we are, that we wouldn't even need to be able to, to stop and think spiritually, that it wouldn't be a change, it wouldn't be part of our mind thinks naturally and part of it thinks spiritually, but that in many ways, that just as a byproduct, that we would have to convince ourselves that, that you are who you are in and through us, that you would just be that, and we would just be the clear and transparent transmitters of that, that we would image forth your face in that way. And so, Father, I I bless this house. I bless everyone that is here, those that are traveling or those that are out of town. Father, those that are, are not with us this morning. Father, we ask that you administer this um, to them as well and that you would help us to continue to embrace the fact that you are releasing us to be who you've called us to be in unencumbered fashion. And anything else that somebody has said about me that you haven't said about me, Father, we just throw that stuff off. We recognize that those are lies. Those that is not from you. So any other thing that has tried to identify me other than your voice, Father, we just offer that now and say we don't want any of that stuff. And we just embrace the affirmation of who you said we are as our Father. And we also give the grace to see others the same way. We speak the grace to see people that don't believe like we believe the same way that we believe you see us. And we thank you, Father.
have a great afternoon.